morning to the Gospel according to John, chapter 17, where we are going to be picking up where we left off with verse 20 and reading through verse 23. John 17, 20 through 23, and you can find that passage on page 1062 in your pew Bibles. I thought that now that we have finished with Hebrews, it would perhaps be a good time to go back here briefly and finish this series that I started during our recent Sunday evening services uh, just last month. We are, of course, nearing the end of the high priestly prayer here of Jesus Christ that we find here in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And as we have seen, it is a prayer where we have witnessed the clear and incomprehensible love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for His church. That love is evidenced in the way that He refers not only to His disciples, but in fact He includes all of those who through the ages will come to Him by faith because of His word being spread to and through them. The word of God is effectively being passed from from the Father to the Son, to these disciples, to the world. As he calls his elect from the corners of the world to himself. And beloved, as we have looked at it, we have been continually pointed to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And to the fact that he and he alone has done all of the work for our salvation. There could be no greater illustration of the love of Jesus Christ than what we find in the wonderful, truly good news of the gospel. We know that Jesus Christ came. He came down. He condescended. He satisfied the justice of Almighty God by first keeping the law perfectly for us. And then willingly going to the cross in order to die for us in our place. Forever satisfying the wrath of Almighty God as he received upon himself the judgment that our sin has merited. He receives our guilt and in exchange we receive his righteousness as our covering. And beloved, if we see it for what it is, we cannot help but to marvel. We cannot help but to stand in awe of this kind of love. Hopefully, by the grace of God, you not only marvel when you see it, but you rejoice when you even think of it. We also see the love that Jesus Christ has for his own here in this prayer in the way that he commends these sinful men before the Holy Father. Singling out those whom he has called in distinction from the world. And lifting us up before the Father praying for those four very specific things that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. Those characteristics in our lives that always lead to His glory and ultimately to our good. He prays for our preservation. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our unity. And ultimately, He prays for our glorification. 
We've already looked closely at the first two of these, both our preservation as well as our sanctification. Jesus Christ prays that we will be kept, that is, we will be preserved amid a wicked world. And we rest knowing that the prayers of Jesus Christ cannot and will not ever fail. We see that there is, of course, a tension here. That though ultimately we will be preserved, we will still struggle on this side of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. But we will be preserved. However, that does not mean that we will cease entirely from sin. We are called to trust Jesus Christ and his finished work for us. We are called to battle against sin and the devil in this life, all the while knowing that it is his perfect obedience, his righteousness, his perfect work for us that will ultimately sustain us and will ultimately cover our sin on the great day of judgment. And it is, of course, the same with our sanctification. We have the promise of God's word that we will be made into the image of Jesus Christ. We will be made into that image in this life. We know that by the grace of God, according to the word of God, that it will happen. That just as Jesus prayed for us to that end, that his prayer will not fail. Our sanctification will be completed and will be perfected when he comes again and he brings in the final consummation of his kingdom. When we will see things as they are and they will no longer be veiled to our eyes because of sin. We see these prayers being answered now. And as they continue to develop over the course of our lives, we look forward to the future when we know that these things will be perfected. Though we look to the future for the final glorification of things, for the perfection of things, We hopefully understand the importance of our being attentive to these things and how that assures us of our union with Jesus Christ. That is in our lives right now. This morning, beloved, I want to look at the third petition of Jesus here to to the Father for his church. And that is that the church would be unified. That the church would have true unity, that we would have unity in Him, that we would all be one in the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. One does not have to think for very long to realize the seriousness that Jesus places on the unity of His church. Again, like our preservation, like our sanctification, it is one of only four things that Jesus lifts before the Father on behalf of his church here in this high priestly prayer. And if you're like me, our minds immediately go to the history of the Christian church. From the time of the apostles until now, and we immediately see that this too is one of those areas where we only get glimpses of it now. And we immediately see that this too is one of those areas that we do not see completely. Knowing that the prayers of Jesus do not ever fail, 
but also knowing that our perception of our unity is imperfect and that it will be until he comes again in glory. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider what our unity should, in fact, consist of now as we await the promised glorious return of our King and the removal of these sinful natures which so often get in our way when we will worship Him face to face and the majesty of heaven seeing Him as He is with our own glorified and perfected bodies. We have at least an idea of what our unity will be like then as we all with unveiled faces worship our King and take our place as the glorious body, the bride of Jesus Christ, united under Jesus Christ as our perfect head. But beloved, what does our unity consist of now? Should you and I always agree for the sake of unity? How is it that we are unified now and what are the implications of that unity? These are the questions that I would like for us to consider as we look at this passage together once again this morning. So if you will please follow along with me in your Bibles as I read this morning from the Gospel according to John chapter 17. Again, I will pick up with verse 20 and read through 23. Hear now the word of our Lord. Jesus praying to the Father says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again this morning we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to come before your word. We pray that you would quiet our minds this morning, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things in this life that distract us. We pray, Father, we would give our undivided attention to your word and that through the the power of your spirit we would hear this word and become doers of this word. Again, for the glory of your holy name, and we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, if you take even a cursory glance at the history of the church of Jesus Christ, one of the things that absolutely will become clear to you is that throughout the centuries, the church of Jesus Christ has had very, very much division. Going all the way back to the time even of the apostles, we see godly men, men like the apostle Paul, having to confront other godly men, men like the apostle Peter, for the sake of the truth of the gospel being preserved. Paul, you will remember, mentions to the church in Galatia that he had to withstand Peter to his face 
for confusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, that was really only the beginning. The history of the Christian church is full of men like Augustine drawing his proverbial line in the sand. There were church councils called as a means of defending orthodoxy, attempting to keep the cancer of heresy and schism from infiltrating the church from within. There were usually not just small or inconsequential issues at stake. Rather, they were called over things like the basic understanding of the two natures of Jesus Christ, human and divine, existing together in one person, or even the doctrine of the Trinity, or the sovereignty of Almighty God and the salvation of man. The issues that were at stake were always monumental. And there were, of course, times in the history of the church where the church had to stand up against her own visible members and say, in essence, you may go this far and not a step farther. Beloved, we see this kind of manifest schism. And so we're left to ask, what does this do to our perception of unity? Did not Jesus pray that these men, and in fact, all who would come after them, who would come to him by faith faith after them, did he not pray for them to be one? For them to exist in unity, even as the Father and the Son exist in unity, even as the Father and the Son are one. Yet we see them disagreeing about things that we would all agree are quite essential to a correct understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, even in these disciples' lifetimes. How could that be? What about a more, at a more current and local level? You and I stand here each and every week. We confess our faith together, usually using the Apostles' Creed, as we did this morning, occasionally using the Nicene Creed, both of which make explicit confession to the fact that we believe in one holy Catholic church. That word Catholic, of course, has nothing to do with Rome or popes, but in fact denotes unity within the true universal church of Jesus Christ. We confess together that we believe in one holy, that is set apart, Catholic, universal and unified church. And yet, as we think about the visible church and even our own country, we scratch our heads at some of the things that are going on and we say, well, I cannot possibly agree with that. We look at the denominations that we collectively belong to and we say, okay, well, the RCUS must be the unity that Jesus was talking about. Is that it? If you ever have the opportunity to attend one of our synods or even a a classes meeting, you will know fairly quickly that even in the RCUS, we do not always agree. So what is this unity and why does it seem as if we do not take this particular portion of Jesus' prayer very seriously? I mean, we can easily see our need to persevere. 
by the grace of God and the grace of God in bringing that perseverance to pass, we understand our desperate need to be sanctified. And we certainly praise God that we are being sanctified, not because of our work, but because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. We know that if not for Jesus, we would fail. So we rest in the fact that by the grace of God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are kept and we are sanctified. But are we unified? We really do not even have to look at the issue of our unity at a local level to see how far we have fallen short. Beloved, I'm asking you, look around the congregation this morning. Look at the faces that you worship with each and every Lord's Day. Some of you have been worshiping together for years and years and years. Are we unified even here? What is it that divides us even now? How is it that we can have unity now? What are you willing to bring division to the people of God over even here at Peace Reformed Church in Napoleon, Ohio? What will it take to make you desire to divide even with these? I think you get the point, beloved, and so we're left to ask ourselves, did Jesus' prayer to the Father for unity in the church fail? Are we maybe only going to be unified then, sometime distant in the future when he comes again, but not so much right now? I think in order to answer those questions, we must first understand that there is a vast difference between unity and uniformity. And we cannot afford to confuse the two in this discussion. Uniformity is a term that means having the state or the quality of being uniform. It is a word that denotes sameness. Being alike, having similar qualities and looking at least on the surface the same. Unity, on the other hand, is a word that means oneness. Which is actually quite a bit different than sameness or likeness. When something is one, we are saying that it is essentially a part of a whole. It is one in the same with another part of the one. It's not simply like another, but it's one with another. Think for a moment about football teams. We're drawing closer as we get here to the beginning of summer. Uh, We're always drawing closer in my eyes to my absolute favorite time of the year. If you're anything like me, you have come to love Saturdays in the fall. Because on Saturdays in the fall, our favorite college football teams take to the field and compete for victory against one another. Now, football teams are, in a sense, uniform. They have qualities of sameness. All football teams have linemen, for example. They all have quarterbacks and running backs. They have linebackers and safeties. All football teams have an offense and a defense and special teams, and coaches. But thankfully, all football teams are not one. 
They are not one in essence, but they do have unity with one another and are not a part of the whole. If they were, they would all be exactly alike, having the same level of talent, the same level of enthusiasm, the same coaching. Football teams are uniform, but they are not a picture of unity. And I trust you can see the difference. Football teams possess uniformity, but thankfully they do not possess absolute unity as anyone who's witnessed the playing of teams like Notre Dame and Ohio State could attest to. And I'll leave it to your imaginations to decide what I mean by that. I can say all of that to point out that one of the mistakes that we so often make when it comes to discussing church unity is to blur the meaning of unity and to confuse it with uniformity. There are those who mistakenly think that Jesus Christ is praying here that the church would become uniform. That is, that we would all be the same. The same in form, the same in discipline, the same in government, the same in appearance. That we would all be exactly like one another. And we do not have to look very deeply at this idea of mistaking uniformity with unity in the visible church to realize that it creates incredibly significant problems. First and perhaps the most obvious is the fact that if Jesus Christ prayed that the visible church would in fact all be alike, then we only have to look at the church throughout history or even the church now in our own day to come to the realization that if that is true, then Jesus' prayer appears to have failed. The church is not alike. We are not all the same. We are not like everyone else. If the measure of the unity of the church is sameness in practice, then we're not alike. There's a world of difference between, say, the RCUS and the CRC. We might be similar. We might have agreement on some of the most important and essential doctrines, but we are not the same. If the goal is uniformity, then we, have, then we do not have to look too hard to see that the goal is nowhere in sight. There may even be some uniformity without having any unity. We may have similar liturgies. We may practice similar methodology with the sacraments. We may even sing from the same hymnals, but that's never, ever the measure of our unity. It may measure our uniformity, but not our unity. So, of course, the question is then, how then is the church unified? If we know that the prayers of Jesus Christ to the Father never can, never will fail, then how is the church unified as a direct answer to his prayer to that very end? How are we one? What is it that our unity is grounded in? Well, beloved, I want to tell you this morning, it is the same ground for our preservation. It is the same ground for our sanctification. And I hope you know what it is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. 
We trust Jesus Christ for our preservation. If we are wise and we heed the words of Scripture, we trust Jesus Christ for our sanctification. It's only in Him by grace that these things are at all present in our lives. And the unity of His glorious bride, the church, though we see it incompletely now, is unshakable. Because the object that unifies us is the Son of God and our God-given faith in Him. Faith which is given by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, turning our eyes towards Jesus. Allowing for us to see ourselves in light of the law of God. Destroying any trust that we might have and how we measure up to it. And then bringing us healing by showing us Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended to glory. His perfect person and his perfect work, his glorious and perfect righteousness become the only balm that will ever soothe our wounded souls. They become the breath of life to our cold dead hearts. Beloved, do you understand this? Listen, this is what we confess as a church in the three forms of unity. The Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer number 53 asks this question. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? Listen to the answer. That Jesus Christ gathers, defends, and preserves for himself unto everlasting life a chosen communion in the unity of true faith. The Belgic Confession of Faith wording is very similar in Article 27. It says this, We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by His blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit, This church has from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal king, which without subjects he cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world. Though it sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing as during the perilous reign of Ahab, when the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bent their knees to Baal. Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world and as yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same Spirit. Power of faith and one in the same spirit is indeed the thing that unifies us. Beloved, do you remember why it was that Jesus said that he asked for these specific things for his church? Look back with me quickly at verse 13. Jesus prays for these things. Why? He says, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world. Why? that they may have my joy fulfilled 
in themselves. Jesus ties this prayer to your joy being fulfilled in and through and because of him. Our unity is as sure as our preservation. It is as sure as our sanctification. It is as sure even of our justification because all of them are in and through Jesus Christ the Lord and our union with him by faith, faith which he gives. Do you see the point that's being made here? How is it that we rob ourselves of the joy that is ours in the life of Christ. Life in Christ. Well, beloved, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we place them on something else. We do it in so many areas of our lives. We say, well, let me think here. Preservation, well, to be preserved, it's quite simple. I just need to stop sinning. And so I develop a methodology that is geared at keeping me from areas where I am prone to fall, and then I can be fine, right? This is the same type of logical rationalization that hears of David's fall with Bathsheba and says, okay, okay, if I want to keep myself from falling, I just have to stay away from rooftops where I might have the opportunity to glimpse women bathing, and then I'll be preserved. It's nonsense. Forget the promise of God. I need, I need a moral to the story. Sounds like a good idea, but is it enough? Is this what sin looks like in the eyes of the law? Something we can overcome? Sanctification? Well, I just need to keep this set of rules. I need to keep these methods, and I simply will have to grow. Unity, I just need to be like all of those people over there and then I will see real unity when I look and smell and think like them. I just need to find people who agree with me about almost everything, people who are like me and whom I am like in both piety and in practice. Is this the unity that will bring about the joy of Jesus Christ in your life? Beloved, let me promise you that it will not. In fact, the only thing these things will do is increase your misery. Do you want to experience unfettered joy in the area of knowing that you will be kept in a world that openly hates God? Then look to Jesus Christ and know that he and he alone is able to keep you and willing. In spite of all of the failure and the eyes of the law that you have managed to amass in this life. And all of the failure that you will continue to pile on as you struggle through this troubled life. And this sinful flesh that we all must wear. Do you want to be sanctified? Then look to Jesus Christ, whose person and work are the surety of that sanctification. And praise God with a grateful heart that he in his mercy has opened your eyes to his work. And to his perfect righteousness that alone will allow for you to be conformed into his glorious image. Do you want unity with the people of God? 
first understand that unity is certainly not uniformity. Then look to Jesus Christ and see that it is his work that unifies his people. That that work is perfect and unshakable and that that work is the glue that holds the people of God together in union with him despite all of the things that you and I do to corrupt it. The reason that we must look to Jesus to see unity is because it's only in Jesus that we ever see the absence of sin. The thing that we come together and bring is never our good ideas of piety. It's certainly never our good intentions. It's not that our hearts are bent towards loving one another and holding one another up as we've been called to. No, the only thing we bring to this equation of perfect unity is our sin, our rebellion, our misery, and our desperate need for redemption. Do you understand? Brothers and sisters in Christ, it should not lead you to despair or to having a melancholy hopelessness to come to this realization. It should lead you to the joy of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is good news, because we do not deserve it individually. We do not deserve it even corporately. But it is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is our faith in Christ that joins us together and not our collective righteousness and never our similarities in practice. I want to ask you something this morning. Do you feel separated from the people of God today? As you look around the sanctuary this morning, what is it that comes to your mind? Is it love? Is it thankfulness for the people of God, these people of God? What is it? Is it your petty differences with one another? Is it that you cannot stand that one over there because they do not serve in the same way and in the same capacity that you do? Is it that that one right over there doesn't lead his family in proper nightly devotions? Is it that that whole group over there is just not as serious about their faith in Jesus as I am? Or maybe they're too serious? Is it that that one homeschools? Or that one sends his kids to the public school? Or that one to the private school? Does the one sitting in front of you this morning not share your affinity for outward acts? Is maybe the one to your right or left, one who has never asked how you were really doing? Maybe the pastor is just not serious enough about his witness in this community. Maybe you think there should be more emphasis on Bible study, or maybe you think there should be less. Maybe the sermons are just too long for you, or if you're really, really holy this morning, maybe you'll say they're too short. Maybe you think there needs to be law and that one over there needs to hear more gospel. Beloved, I hope you get the point. 
If unity with the people of God and your love towards your neighbors, even here in the house of God, are dependent upon anything other than the love of God evidenced in and through Jesus Christ and our union with him by faith, then the only constant in that equation is the sin that so easily ensnares us. And the fickleness and the frailty of fallen humanity, which always fails us. never allows one another to live up to any of our high, high expectations. Beloved, do you want to love the brothers and sisters in Christ that surround you this morning? Do you want to experience the joy of true unity? Then stop judging your brothers and sisters by their ability to keep your perception of the law of God and look to the law yourself. And come to the realization that the most sinful person that you will deal with on any given day is the one who stares back out at you from the mirror every morning. And then run to Jesus and find forgiveness for even your most vile offenses. And when you see that Jesus has forgiven you, I'm here to tell you, you will naturally look at your brothers and sisters through a very different set of eyes. And you will realize that the people of this church, the people of the church universal, were not put here for your misery, but for your joy in Jesus Christ. The joy of Christ fulfilled in you. That's the prayer. We are one in Jesus Christ, and that is a unity that can endure even the ignorance of our fallen flesh, which so desperately kicks against the concept of grace and frantically scrambles to the law for comfort, only to find more and more misery. That is how we know our misery, according to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question two. From where do you know your misery? It's simple, really. Out of the law of God. And if you look up to question one, you will find there your only true comfort in life and in death. And it's not being united with the people who look and act just like you do. Who keep your same set of imposed rules, self-imposed rules. Who belong to your same inner circles. No, the answer is the person and work of Jesus Christ and our unity with Him. And the glorious unity of the Godhead working all things together for your salvation. That indeed, beloved, is your comfort in life and in death. And so I close with asking you, what do you cling to this morning? Are you clinging to your right to be offended? Or are you clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave more grace to a wretch like you. That's life. The law and your misery or Jesus and his love for you, your only comfort in life and in death, the one who gives unity through faith in him alone to the people of God. The one who, by the way, the holy law of God was meant to drive you towards, to send you running to. Amen? Let's pray.